Part Thirteen, Section Fifty One of the Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Dark Flower, by John Galsworthy, Section Fifty One. Outside, he walked a few steps then stood looking back at the windows of the hall, through some trees, the shadows of whose trunks, in the light of a street lamp, were spilled out along the ground like the splines of a fan. A church clock struck eleven. For hours yet she would be there, going round and round in the arms of youth. Try as he might, he could never recapture for himself the look that Oliver's face had worn the look that was the symbol of so much more than he himself could give her. Why had she come into his life? To her undoing and his own? And the bizarre thought came to him. If she were dead, should I really care? Should I not be almost glad? If she were dead, her witchery would be dead, and I could stand up straight again and look people in the face. What was this power that played with men? Darted into them, twisted their hearts to rags? This power that had looked through her eyes when she put her fan with his flowers to her lips? The thrumming of the music ceased. He walked away. It must have been nearly twelve when he reached home. Now once more would begin the gruesome process of deception, flinching of soul, and brazening a visage. It would be better when the whole thievish business was irretrievably begun and ordered in its secret courses. There was no light in the drawing-room, save just the glow of the fire. If only Sylvia might have gone to bed. Then he saw her sitting motionless out there by the uncurtained window. He went over to her and began his hateful formula. I'm afraid you've been lonely. I had to stay rather late. A dull evening. And since she did not move or answer, but just sat there, very still and white, he forced himself to go close, bend down to her, touch her cheek even to kneel beside her. She looked round then. Her face was quiet enough, but her eyes were strangely eager. With a pitiful little smile, she broke out. Oh, Mark, what is it? What is it? Anything is better than this. Perhaps it was the smile. Perhaps her voice or eyes. But something gave way in Lenin. Secrecy, precaution, went by the board. Bowing his head against her breast, he poured it all out while they clung, clutched together, in the half-dark, like two frightened children. Only when he had finished did he realize that if she had pushed him away, refused to let him touch her, it would have been far less piteous, far easier to bear, than her wan face and her hands clutching him, and her words, I never thought, you and I, oh, Mark, you and I. The trust in their life together, in himself, 
that those words revealed, yet not greater than he had had, still had. He could not understand. He had known that she could never understand. It was why he fought so for secrecy all through. She was taking it as if she had lost everything. And in his mind she had lost nothing. This passion, this craving for youth and life, this madness, call it what one would, was something quite apart. Not touching his love and need of her, if she would only believe that. Over and over he repeated it, over and over again, perceived that she could not take it in. The only thing she saw was that his love had gone from her to another, though that was not true. Suddenly she broke out of his arms, pushing him from her, and cried, That girl, hateful, horrible, false. Never had he seen her look like this, with flaming spots in her white cheeks, soft lips and chin distorted, blue eyes flaming, breast heaving, as if each breath were drawn from lungs that received no air. And then as quickly the fire went out of her, she sank down on the sofa, covering her face with her arms, rocking to and fro. She did not cry, but a little moan came from her now and then. And each one of those sounds was to Lenin like the cry of something he was murdering. At last, he went and sat down on the sofa by her and said, Sylvia, Sylvia, don't, oh, don't. And she was silent, ceasing to rock herself, letting him smooth and stroke her. But her face she kept hidden, and only once she spoke so low that he could hardly hear. I can't. I won't keep you from her. And with the awful feeling that no words could reach or soothe the wound in that tender heart, he could only go on stroking and kissing her hands. It was atrocious, horrible, this that he had done. God knew that he had not sought it. The thing had come to him. Surely, even in her misery, she could see that. Deep down beneath his grief and self-hatred, he knew what neither she nor anyone else could know, that he could not have prevented this feeling, which went back to days before he ever saw the girl, that no man could have stopped that feeling in himself. This craving and roving was as much part of him as his eyes and hands as overwhelming and natural a longing as his hunger for work, or his need of the peace that Sylvia gave, and alone could give him. That was the tragedy. It was all sunk and rooted in the very nature of a man. Since the girl had come into their lives, he was no more unfaithful to his wife in thought than he had been before. If only she could look into him, see him exactly as he was, as without part or lot in the process, he had been made. 
then she would understand and even might not suffer. But she could not, and he could never make it plain, and solemnly, desperately, with a weary feeling of the futility of words, he went on trying. Could she not see? It was all a thing outside him, a craving, a chase after beauty and life, after his own youth. At that word, she looked at him. And do you think I don't want my youth back? He stopped. For a woman to feel that her beauty, the brightness of her hair and eyes, the grace and suppleness of her limbs, were slipping from her, and from the man she loved. Was there anything more bitter, or any more sacred duty, than not to add to that bitterness, not to push her with suffering into old age, but to help keep the star of her faith in her charm intact? Man and woman, they both wanted youth again, she that she might give it all to him, he because it would help him towards something new. Just that world of difference. He got up and said, Come, dear, let's try and sleep. He had not once said that he could give it up. The words would not pass his lips, though he knew she must be conscious that he had not said them must be longing to hear them. All he had been able to say was, So long as you want me, you shall never lose me, and I will never keep anything from you again. Up in their room she lay hour after hour in his arms, quite unresentful but without life in her, and with eyes that when his lips touched them were always wet. What a maze was a man's heart, wherein he must lose himself every minute. What involved and intricate turnings and turnings on itself. What fugitive replacement of emotion by emotion. What strife between pities and passions. What longing for peace. And in his feverish exhaustion, which was almost sleep, Lenin hardly knew whether it was the thrum of music or Sylvia's moaning that he heard, her body or Nell's within his arms. But life had to be lived, a face preserved against the world, engagements kept. And the nightmare went on for both of them, under the calm surface of an ordinary Sunday. They were like people walking at the edge of a high cliff, not knowing from step to step whether they would fall, or like swimmers struggling for issue out of a dark whirlpool. In the afternoon they went together to a concert. It was just something to do, something that saved them for an hour or two from the possibility of speaking on the one subject left to them. The ship had gone down, and they were clutching at anything that for a moment would help to keep them above water. In the evening some people came to supper, a writer and two painters with their wives. A grim evening, never more so than when the conversation 
turned on that perennial theme the freedom spiritual mental physical requisite for those who practice art all the stale arguments were brought forth and had to be joined in with unmoved faces and for all their talk of freedom lenin could see the volte face his friends would be making if they only knew it was not the thing to seduce young girls as if forsooth there were freedom in doing only what people thought the thing their cant about the free artist spirit experiencing everything would wither the moment it came up against a canon of good form so that in truth it was no freer than the bourgeois spirit with its conventions or the priest's spirit with its cry of sin no no to resist if resistance were possible to this dragging power maxims of good form dogmas of religion and morality were no help nothing was any help but some feeling stronger than passion itself sylvia's face forced to smile that indeed was a reason why they should condemn him none of their doctrines about freedom could explain that away the harm the death that came to a man's soul when he made a loving faithful creature suffer but they were gone at last with their thanks so much and their delightful evening and those two were face to face for another night he knew that it must begin all over again inevitable after the stab of that wretched argument plunged into their hearts and turned and turned all the evening i won't i mustn't keep you starved and spoil your work don't think of it mark i can bear it and then a breakdown worse than the night before what genius what sheer genius nature had for torturing her creatures if any one had told him even so little as a week ago that he could have caused such suffering to sylvia sylvia whom as a child with wide blue eyes and a blue bow on her flaxen head he had guarded across fields full of imaginary bulls sylvia in whose hair his star had caught sylvia who night and day for fifteen years had been his devoted wife whom he loved and still admired he would have given him the lie direct it would have seemed incredible monstrous silly had all married men and women such things to go through was this but a very usual crossing of the desert or was it once for all shipwreck death unholy violent death in a storm of sand another night of misery and no answer to that question yet he had told her that he would not see nell again without first letting her know so when morning came he simply wrote the words don't come today showed them to sylvia and sent them by a servant to Dromore's. hard to describe the bitterness with which he entered his studio this morning in all this chaos 
What of his work? Could he ever have peace of mind for it again? Those people last night had talked of inspiration, of passion, of experience. In pleading with her, he had used the words himself. She, poor soul, had but repeated them, trying to endure them, to believe them true. And were they true? Again, no answer, or certainly none that he could give. To have had the waters broken up, to be plunged into emotion, to feel desperately instead of stagnating. Some day he might be grateful, who knew? Some day there might be fair country again, beyond this desert, where he could work even better than before. But just now, as well expect creative work from a condemned man. It seemed to him that he was equally destroyed, whether he gave Nell up, and with her, once for all, that roving, seeking instinct, which ought forsooth to have been satisfied, and was not, or whether he took Nell, knowing that in doing so he was torturing a woman dear to him. That was as far as he could see today. What he would come to see in time, God only knew. But freedom of the spirit, that was a phrase of bitter irony indeed. And there, with his work all round him, like a man tied hand and foot, he was swept by such a feeling of exasperated rage as he had never known. Women, these women, only let him be free of both, of all women, and the passions and pities they aroused, so that his brain and his hands might live and work again. They should not strangle, they should not destroy him. Unfortunately, even in his rage, he knew that flight from them both could never help him, one way or the other. The thing would have to be fought through. If it had been a straight fight, even. A clear issue between passion and pity. But both he loved and both he pitied. There was nothing straight and clear about it anywhere. It was all too deeply rooted in full human nature. And the appalling sense of rushing ceaselessly from barrier to barrier began really to affect his brain. True, he had now and then a lucid interval of a few minutes, when the ingenious nature of his own torments struck him as supremely interesting and queer. But this was not precisely a relief, for it only meant, as in prolonged toothache, that his power of feeling had for a moment ceased. A very pretty little hell indeed. All day he had the premonition, amounting to certainty, that Nell would take alarm at those three words he had sent her, and come in spite of them. And yet what else could he have written? Nothing save what must have alarmed her more, or plunged him deeper. He had the feeling that she could follow his moods, that her eyes could see him everywhere, as a cat's eyes can see in darkness. That feeling had been with him, more or less, ever since the last evening in October. 
The evening she came back from her summer, grown up. How long ago? Only six days, was it possible? Ah, yes, she knew when her spell was weakening, when the current wanted, as it were, renewing. At about six o'clock, dusk already, without the least surprise, with only a sort of empty quivering, he heard her knock and just behind the closed door, as near as he could get to her, he stood holding his breath. He had given his word to Sylvia, of his own accord had given it. Through the thin wood of the old door, he could hear the faint shuffle of her feet on the pavement, moved a few inches this way and that, as though supplicating the inexorable silence. He seemed to see her head bent a little forward, listening. Three times she knocked, and each time Lenin writhed. It was so cruel. With that seeing sense of hers, she must know he was there. His very silence would be telling her, for his silence had its voice, its pitiful, breathless sound. Then, quite distinctly, he heard her sigh and her footsteps move away, and covering his face with his hands, he rushed to and fro in the studio, like a madman. No sound of her any more. Gone. It was unbearable. And seizing his hat, he ran out. Which way? At random, he ran towards the square. There she was, over by the railings, languidly, irresolutely moving towards home. End of section 51 Recording by John Brandon